Well, let's, um, let's jump uh, back into John chapter 5, and I'm just going to read the passage that we started with last week, and we're going to hopefully wrap up today. Um, John chapter 5, starting in verse 18. So Jesus had just healed the man at the pool of Bethesda, which um, Paul taught through extremely well a few weeks ago, if you've not heard that. Um, go to the website, look it up, get the podcast, whatever, and um, listen to or watch Paul teach through that. Um, he really covered that extremely well. Um, <clears throat> I had also just found years ago, although I couldn't refind it, so I'm, I'm hoping the scholarship hasn't changed on it, but the whole pool stirring up um, a new theory to that, if, this, if you really want to take that and, um, and run with that, is that uh, Antonia Fortress, which was the Roman fortress, which was right next door to what was going on at the Pool of Bethesda, they have dug up the, the sewage lines that came down in the time of Jesus from the Pool of Bethesda, and they make contact, the, the sewage lines from the Antonia Fortress make contact with the Pool of Bethesda. And uh, some think that um, the reason the water churned and at the time when people were trying to rush to get into the water to get healed was actually because the warm sewage was being mixed in at the base of the cool spring water of Pool of Bethesda. So, which also might explain why for 38 years he didn't get healed. Um, that would not be a positive uh, medical experience, I don't think. So, um, uh, so that was, the, that was what was going on. It is important, and, and Paul pointed this out, that the Bible never claims that it was an angel that was stirring the water. Um, one of the Gospels points out that it was a legend, and some of the others, the verse was added in much, much later, um, saying it as well, but the original writers didn't claim that, which that, that kind of helps us engage with that too. Um, anyway, however that happened, the guy, this man had been healed by Jesus. The man had then had a confrontation with the religious leaders because he was carrying around his mat on a Sabbath, on a Saturday, and uh, that was un, un, not allowed by the religious leaders, and so they went and confronted Jesus because Jesus is the one who told him to carry his mat. And so they went and confronted Jesus, and that's where we pick up that they were mad at him because he was telling people to break the Sabbath and claiming to have the authority to do so. So that's where we get into verse 18. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. You're not going to have these ready, so that's okay. I'm just going to read them. Why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, and remember that's always like, hey, listen here, listen to this. I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. Greater works than these he will show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, so that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. He has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, and those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment." So that's the passage that we're going to finish up, um, hopefully, today. We got quite a ways down into it. We're going to actually 
um, what we ended up you doing is, is using this as an opportunity to begin to lay the groundwork for this idea of a God who can be described that one of the traits of God is that he is one. If you missed last week, you're going to want to go back and listen to that. This, that is very much so the ground that is laid last week is the importance and significance of the fact that Almighty God, that God is one. We even talked about why that was such a big deal to the Jewish thinking. That was what set them apart. It is what had had them persecuted. It would have created all kinds of issues for them in their world is the fact that they believe that God is one. There is only one true God. There may be all these other little G gods or spiritual beings or whatever they were or however you want to engage with that. But the truth was, in the end, there was only one God. He was the God of gods. He was the King of kings, the Lord of lords. That was this God. He was beholden to no man. As he says in the Psalms, if he's hungry, he wouldn't tell us. He doesn't need anything from us. Our worship does not somehow make him more powerful. Our words does not somehow force him into action. However that this plays out for us, understanding he is God and he is independent. He is, he is external of us. He is not someone that we've created in our image. In fact, he created us in his. Um, and he is often, because of that, often extremely disappointing to us. That he is not the God that we would like for him to be. That he doesn't do things the way we think he ought to do them. That we don't understand the decisions that he makes. Absolutely understandably. This is, this is a given. It's going to be the case. If you have a God who does not follow your beck and is not at your call, then you're going to be upset with him at times because he's not going to do what you want him to do. He's playing a totally different game than we are, so to speak. He is, he's working at a level that's beyond us. Our greatest wisdom is foolishness to him. And often what seems to be foolishness to us is his great wisdom. He, his, his inefficiency drives us nuts at times. It seems like he could have dealt with all this long before now. He could have fixed this all before now. We play in a very temporal game. We, we think in terms of life and death here on earth as being the ultimate of ultimates. So we get really, really mad, and, and it's hard for us to wrap our brain around the fact that God allows people to die, and unjustly, and unfairly, and and in a way that seems unkind and, and untimely and all the different things that really frustrates us and is so hard for us to wrap our brains around. And that's going to be the case. We aren't going to get it. You've heard me talk about before that I, I grew up around professors. And so it's, it's normal for me to understand and accept that there are people who know what they're doing and I don't understand what they're doing. But they, that doesn't mean they don't. Just because I don't have any idea what they're talking about doesn't mean they don't know what they're talking about. So I, I grew up with this intuitively, so it was never really hard for me to engage with this. I, we all now as specialists, we engage in one area of specialization, and we usually do it so well that if, if I brought two of the attorneys in the room up here to talk about something, very quickly they would be talking, and none of us would have any idea what they were saying, right? I mean, all of you have read the, the disclaimers. Every time you get a new piece of software, you all read that thing, right, from beginning to ending, before you click that button. I mean, no one just, click, just scans straight down to the bottom and clicks that. I mean, you're... You're signing something. No, we all do that. None of us pay any attention to any of that. We're counting on the fact that the attorneys know what they're doing and that it's, they're not out to hurt us because if they wanted to, they own us now, right? I mean, that's long ago. We all signed away every right we probably had without knowing it. That's a, so you can take that. Take two philosophers and you ask them to debate something. And if they want to go quickly, if they don't have an audience, it's just the two of them, they're very quickly using shorthand. Pick a field that's going to be the case every single field that's going to be the case because these people know what they're talking about and the fact that we don't doesn't mean they don't. This is the case with God. He does stuff all the time. We have no idea what he's doing or why he's doing it. 
That doesn't mean he's in any way, in any way confused or, or frustrated or, or weirded out by this. He knows exactly what he's doing. And, but that's, that's tough for us. This is God. He is God, and he's not a God who we command or we use magic words or we do whatever to force him or to capitulate to our will. It never happens. He never capitulates to our will against his will. That is not, that's never going to happen. He, he's God. Now, that's, again, uncomfortable for us. But he is God, and he is one, and that just sets him apart from the other, all the other pantheons of all the other gods of all the other cultures for most of human history. And thousands of years before humanity even came up with the idea, God revealed to a man named Abraham that he was one. And he slowly revealed more and more about his identity over thousands of years and is continuing to do so. Um, it's, it's, it's an amazing thing to be, to be a part of seeing God continue to reveal himself. Um, so the idea that God is one, it is scripturally not debatable that God is one. But that creates a huge problem for these first century Jews and these first century Jewish leaders and these first century philosophers and theologians, many of whom could have torn us to pieces in a debate. It's a natural tendency for us because we're more technologically advanced to think we were, we're more intelligent than, than they were 2,000 years ago. Not the case. Um, not at all the case. Many of them would have been much better trained in how to have a debate or a discussion and certainly better trained in philosophy and reasoning and thinking and, and memory devices and stuff like that than we will. We, we have, we'll never probably regain any of that kind of stuff at the same level that they did. But it's, they weren't less intelligent. They may have been less technologically advanced, although that, those may be reverse correlation in some ways. But understanding, so we ended last time looking at the fact that Jesus Christ is revealed to be God. That creates a problem. Jesus Christ clearly does not claim to be the Father, but he does clearly claim to be God. So this begins to create a problem for these first century Jews whose entire identity is founded on the fact that God is one. Then the early Christians had to deal even more difficultly with passages like this, 2 Corinthians 3, 17 and 18. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. So now we've accepted that we're trying to wrap our brains around the idea that Jesus Christ is not the Father. He is the Son, but He is still God. That's difficult. Then we start running into passages that begin seem to be saying that this other character, the Spirit, is God, is the Lord. Acts 5, 3 and 4. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land while it remained unsold? Did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it you have conceived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to men, but to God. Here in this passage, your heart lied to the Holy Spirit. You've not lied to men, but God makes it very clear that the Holy Spirit is God. So do you imagine what this was doing to the early Christians, most of whom were Jews, as they're wrestling with this idea that, wait a minute, God is one. This is God, the Father, revealed to us, Yahweh, I am. And, and somehow Jesus Christ, who isn't the Father, is also God, but, we're, but God is one. That, that doesn't get canceled. And now this Holy Spirit person, this Holy Spirit is God, but, but the Holy Spirit is not the Son, and the Holy Spirit is not the Father, and yet somehow the Holy Spirit is God. How is this possible? 
Understand that they didn't go like, oh, well, we'll just deal with it. We'll just accept it and go with it and just, we'll just, whatever. It's just some academic question that doesn't really matter anyway, which is how most of us deal with this question. It's why you get books published that treat the Trinity as though the Trinity is kind of a throwaway doctrine. Like, hey, you know, God could be triune. He, could, he might not be. It's like, a, it's like a spring in a trampoline. You can remove it, and the trampoline still bounces if you remove some springs. There's a problem, though, because Scripture reveals so clearly this picture. We are stuck wrapping, trying to wrap our brains around it just like they were. How could this still be the case? Um, this idea, they, they believed pretty strongly that none of the things that we were to believe about God were illogical or irrational. They might be mysterious, but that's not the same thing. We talked about that last week. It's not the same thing to say my wife is mysterious and to say she's irrational, right? Remember I warned you guys, husbands, like, let's stay away from that word. No, it's not a good one. Over time, as they began to wrestle, wrestle with it, they came to this idea which became known as the orthodox view. Now, there's a number of things, in case you hear that word. In today's world, the word orthodoxy sometimes means like a bad thing, like you just believe it even though you don't understand it. And I hope that that's never the case for you. But orthodox doesn't mean anything more special. Orthos meaning right, doxa meaning a view or an opinion. So orthodox just means you have the right opinion. And, and this was come to difficultly. In some ways, we all have to come up with this on our own again and again. But there's a picture that over time began to relate to this was the orthodox view. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Of course, it's Latin. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So God is in the middle. The Father is God. The Son is God. The Holy Spirit is God. That's the middle part. The outside part says, is not. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father. This is, this is key teaching. There are three different persons, even though they are all one God. Now, what's interesting to me is how often immediately people hear something like that and they think, well, that's not possible. I've never understood that, especially once I was trained a little bit to go, no, that doesn't, that, of, of course that's possible. There's nothing impossible or, or even odd about this idea. All the different other schools of thought ended up being called heresy, just meaning coming from the root word choice, here implying a bad choice. So you have chosen poorly if you choose to believe something about the Trinity that isn't this, Right? That's the idea. It's founded in the concept of separation and pride. And this is so often the case when someone has a new theology. It's really about, I, now I get it. So you, you guys may appreciate, when I left Pine Cove, um, a friend and I left, left Pine Cove near the same time, or about that, somebody said, um, you guys ought to found a church. You guys ought to start a church in Tyler. And so both of us sat on his front porch and we talked for a while and said, why would we do that? Like, that's what we need in Tyler is more churches, right? Banks and Mexican restaurants and churches. That's what we really need some more of in Tyler, right? We don't have enough of those going on yet. So we were like, no, that's, that's ridiculous. What we need to do is step into a church, find a church somewhere, engage at what they're already doing. There's no reason. To, the only reason it would make sense for us to found a church is if somehow we had figured out finally how it should be done. And any, it's so often when you see a new church startup, and that's their philosophy, is, okay, after 2,000 years, we've finally solved the puzzle. 
This is how church is supposed to be done. This is that special little key theological stance that only we understand. And that everybody else has been getting wrong. That's why it's so often founded in pride and separation. Even to this day, there are new theologies and new philosophies that appear. Sometimes there's cool insights in them, and we can learn a lot from them. I'm not opposed to us continuing to wrestle through that. But very, very often, you will discover that new theologies are just old heresies rebate. It's just an old heresy. It's been done. It's been debated. It's been gone through. It's one of my favorite things when, um, when the media discovers some new Christian teaching. And they, they discover some new book has been discovered, like the book of Judas, which was discovered long ago. But the book of Judas, which is some Gnostic gospel. And the media, the media just discovered it. They love when they, I love when they, and so now it's, now it's going to get its own time life book and it's going to be, it's going to be on every news station. It's going to talk about it and they're all going to, and it turns out and, and you go like, okay, so one in the Christian world, this isn't new. There's nothing new about this. There's no reason to engage with this this way. It's ridiculous for us to be asked to engage and people come out. How come early Christians didn't accept this Bible, this book into the Bible too? And you go like, you mean a book written 250 years after the Bible was closed written by people who weren't Christians and who just chose the name of one of the disciples and wrote a book, why don't we put that back in our Bible? For the same reason, if I wrote an addition to the Constitution or the Declaration of Independence and claimed it was that I was Thomas Jefferson, we wouldn't go like, we ought to add that in. <laughs> Especially if it's directly oppositional to the principles of the Declaration of Independence, you would go like, well, no, sorry, Chris, we're not putting your book in, for the, your paragraph in. For the same reason, we don't take it, that's... But, but man, it gets so much press and so much attention. Don't let that phase you when these old heresies re or reappear some new theology. Again, I love to study them and I love to learn from them, um, but you just have to be very wary of them, especially when it comes to the Trinity. There are so many different views that have come out. It's one of the things that set apart the Mormons. It's one of the things that set apart um, the Jehovah's Witnesses. These are both, they both had some new, now we get the, we understand it in some new way. It's, it's a, um, Islam has a, a really strange understanding of the Trinity. This is a, these new, the oneness Pentecostals, many of the liberal churches, they come out with these new understandings of the Trinity and that's what separates them apart. And now they get it and you should come to their church because they're the only ones who understand it. And it flies in the face of what the first 400 years of Christians hammering this out concluded. That threeness and oneness can be reasonable traits of a single thing. Now, we all know that. We could come up with hundreds of examples where something is three and it is also one. That's not somehow strange. That's not somehow weird. You've grown up with them. If you've grown up in church, as your Sunday school teachers have tried to explain the Trinity to you, and they've talked about an egg, and they've talked about how an egg has a shell and an almond and a yolk and how, how that's all three parts. At least a, that's heresy, by the way. It's not three in the same way that, that God is three and one. But it shows that, three, that something can be three and it can be one. The three states of matter, liquid, solid, gas. These are three things, even though it's one, right? It's three and it's one. Now, it's not three and one in the, exactly the same way that God is three and one. It still becomes a heresy eventually. Or the fact that I'm a brother, and a son, and a father. Those are three things that I am, even though it's still one person. Now that still falls apart at some point. Pick it. There are many, many, many of them. 
The problem is, they don't, they're not precisely the same three in one in the same way God is three in one, but you wouldn't expect them to be. God is unique. We talked about that too. When you take a unique individual and you start saying, well, you know, you know this guy, he's kind of like this guy, and he's kind of like this guy, and he's kind of like this guy, and he's kind of like this guy. But when you put all those together, it really doesn't exactly fit. So it's because this is a unique individual. So there are unique traits about God. And one of God's unique traits is the way in which he is three and one. So our brains don't do well without analogies. We like analogies. Our brains struggle without them, but that's, that's part of what's going on here for our brains. But it's still more than just academic. It's still pretty cool when you see and you really engage with it. In fact, let me, let me help you understand how the early church fathers and the early philosophers engaged with this. <clears throat> I've probably talked about this before, and I'm sure I have on Wednesday nights, so you'll have to excuse me if you've been, heard this before. But I want you to imagine, here's how they engage with it. Okay, basic philosophy 101. Um, one of the terms in philosophy that's important is the word essence or essential traits. This is what makes something what it is. Um, we, again, this, is this sounding familiar? Have I done this on a Sunday morning recently? Yeah, just deja vu as a Wednesday night. A glitch in the matrix. I need to, so if I had a chair up here, if I put a chair up here and I said, what makes this a chair? And we could discuss that as a group, right? So we go, this, this is what, and we could say, what makes, so what counts as a chair and what doesn't count as a chair? And we could all throw up a bunch of different examples of, Chairs, you're like, is this a chair? What if it's, so a chair is something that you sit in. It's got four legs. So this, so this would be a chair, but a three-legged stool would not be a chair. Like, ooh, would, and we would, we would have this huge debate over, so what about a chair that's too big to sit in? Would you count that as a, what about a chair that's too small that only dolls can sit in? Would a baby doll chair still be a chair? What about a beanbag? Is that a chair? So we could, you see how we would have that debate? That's what, that's what they did before they had Netflix, is they would debate this <laughs> stuff for hours and hours and days and days and discuss these things. They were, they were geniuses when it came to, ration, to, to rationality, to engaging with these kind of conversations and having these debates. So let's pick something easy like a circle. So a circle is round if I do a circle like this. Now, now what if I do that same shape over here? Now what is it? Still a circle. Because location is not an essential trait of a circle. You have a circle here, you have a circle here, they're both still circles. Now, if I'd put it up on the screen, I'd done a black one, and then I did a purple one, what is the second one? Still a circle. It's just a purple circle because color is not an essential trait of a circle. It's what's called an accidental trait. That doesn't mean it's an accident. That's just the, 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 the uh, philosophical term for it. It's a trait that can change without changing what it is. The whole argument is of fundamentalism is that there are certain things, foundationalism, there are certain things that are essential our nation is having a big debate about this right now in regards to sex and gender. Are there essentials or is everything an accidental trait when it comes to human identity? It's whatever I decide that it is. That's the debate that's going on. They don't know it's a philosophical debate, but it is. So that's, what, that's the idea. Of, now, what if I say I'm going to do a circle, but I'm going to put four corners in it? Now what do I have? I said a circle with four corners. I should get to dictate what it is, right? No, that's nuts. That's nuts. Um, a circle has to mean something, and circle means round. I, me saying this is a circle does not somehow make it one. It's still a square, because it has, or, or something like it, something close to a square. That's what it is, because round is an essential trait of circle. Good? Isn't that hard, is it? No. So here's what the early fathers figured out. Whatever the essence is of God... 
whatever the essential traits of God are, what it means to be God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit share. They all carry the exact same essence. Now, we could debate for a long time what the essence of God is, what it was required to be God, in the same way that round is required to be circle. Then, anything that might be an accidental trait, and some believe there are no accidental traits about God, but those who do, either way, would say the accidental traits are different. Their relationships, the way they engage their roles, sometimes maybe even, quote, responsibilities, how they engage in human prayer, what they do in judgment, those those kind of things, like those may be different if you believe that there are accidental traits of God's, but the essential traits are all the same. So you can imagine if somebody else had the exact same essential traits of being Chris Leg, but there was another one, you see how that would create an interesting dynamic. Which one of us is Chris? Well, if we both have the essential traits of Chris, we both are. But, but if we're two different persons... And we have two different jobs, say, for example, because job is not an essential trait of Chris. So you see how that would be possible. How you could have two or three persons who have the exact same essence, but the accidental to the traits like color or, or location for circle. You see how that plays out? Yes? No? A little tougher? This is what the early fathers realized what must be true about God, is that the essence of God was shared by three persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All sharing the essence of God, even though three different individual persons. Why does that matter? A couple of reasons. One, the Bible teaches that it is so. So for us to seek to understand it is positive. It's a good thing. It's a rational view that is orthodox. John 5, 24 through 27. I'm going to start with 24, which is where we are. Truly, truly. And again, that's a, that's, a, that's a little word thing. I don't know about you, but that gets old to me when I'm reading it or listening to it, that Jesus keeps saying true. And it's going to happen a lot in the book of John. Just remember that this is his way of like snapping his fingers. Hey, pay attention to this. The audience he's talking to, he knows they're starting to drift. They're starting to think about something else. They're stuck on the fact that this guy's being healed on the Sabbath. Wait, he shouldn't be carrying his... Nope. Focus. Focus. I say to you, whoever hears my word, my word... And believes him who sent me has eternal life. This is the key to the book of John. He wants us all to hear it and believe it and have eternal life. This is what it says. You hear my words, and that causes you to believe in the one who sent me. You have eternal life. He doesn't come into judgment, but passes from death to life. Remember we talked about earlier how the idea of people dying is really troubling for us because we don't have God's perspective God's perspective is like, no, no, that's the point, is we pass from death to life. Death for us is death, the human death, the death of the body is nothing more for the Christian than a transition. It's walking through a doorway, I assume. It's something like that for us. No one knows exactly what the experience is, but the experience is just to move straight through. And it's like, oh, you fall asleep and then you wake up. It goes dark and then it goes light. Like whatever that experience exactly is, it's just transfer. Clarifying thought into salvation. Salvation is about trusting in God. Verse 25. Truly, truly. Listen up. Not done yet. I say to you, an hour is coming, and it's now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. And those who hear will live. Jesus is talking about what's going to happen in just a few chapters. 
In just a few chapters, Jesus is going to stand at a tomb and call out a friend's name, and that friend is going to come out. He's dead. God, Jesus Christ has now healed people who were born with a disease. He has healed people with diseases, which is huge in the Jewish mind. You don't, okay, someone who's sick can get well, but someone who is born with a disease or has a long-term illness, nothing, you don't fix them. Nothing fixes them. And yet Jesus, with a word, is fixing these people. And they're stunned by this. <coughs> He's saying, that's it? That impresses you? Just wait till I raise a dead man. I mean, dead. Four days dead. When that happens, you think you're impressed now. What are you going to say then? So he's talking about the fact that he's going to literally, right in front of their eyes, not just, this isn't just an analogy. I will raise the dead. The, dead, the people who are dead will pass on alive. This is literally, I have so much power in regards to life and death that when I tell a dead man to stand up and walk, he will. He seems to be relating these four words in a new way. Look, when we look back at verse 21, for as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to him who he will. He's talking literally, figuratively, all of it. He will do this thing. He will literally raise the dead in a few chapters, and he will raise all of us who were dead in our sins to life if we trust, if we believe in the Father, the one who has sent him. Verse 26, for the Father has life in himself. One of the kids asked this week, so we did a Q&A, like an hour and a half, two hours of Q&A with me um, this week. And uh, the kids were really, we, we loved it. We do that sometimes at camp, and they were really engaged and asking great questions. And one of the questions was, what was, what was it like? Like, wh- how long has God been here? It's the question. How long has God been here? And so we talked about the challenges of the human language in answering this question, but this, this shows this answer to the question. God exists because life is in him. He is life. Life doesn't come from lifelessness. We all learned that in sixth grade science. And in the ninth grade science, we learned that life came from nothing. I've never understood that. Like, we, you, ought to, you ought to clarify that at some point. Like, you can't get spontaneous generation, but, but somehow you got spontaneous generation. Um, no, life comes from life. God is, the, God is the author of life because God is life. Life is part of his identity. This is who he is. He always has been because life is in him. He, he lived before there was time. He existed at a time when just being alive was all that, all that there was. God's existence was existence outside of time, predating time, which we can't even use language for that. For the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself, which means that the Son has also always existed. And he has given him authority to execute judgment, for he is the Son of Man. This is a great, huge, cool thing for us as Christians, by the way. It's not necessary that we understand it. But listen, we're going to be judged someday, not by God the Father, apparently, but somehow by God the Son. Why? This tells us why. Why, why are we being judged by the Son? I know. Let me see. Because he's been us. Isn't that better? Wouldn't it be better to be, if you're a homeless person and you get dragged in off the streets for some kind of crime for being a homeless person, wouldn't it be cool if your judge had been a homeless person? Don't you think they would be able to engage better with your experience and your existence and offer you better justice? It just would feel that way. It's not necessary that you go to a doctor who's had a broken leg to get your broken leg fixed. 
But at the same time, there's something kind of cool about that. I, oh, yeah, I remember that. So you understand, this is, the, this, is the, this is the priest who has experienced every temptation that we've experienced. This is the son who has experienced, this, this is a human man who, this is God who experienced life as a human being who was so exhausted, was, he, had, he had to be carried onto a boat and slept through a storm. I mean, this is, this is a God who experienced life as a human. And we stand before him and he goes, oh yeah, I remember that. And that also is a little harder too. Because if, you've, if, you've, if you go to a, a rehab doctor who's also had his ankle, the ligaments in his ankle destroyed, and he went back to rehab, and he struggled through it and had a hard time, and you go to him and he goes, how's the rehab going? You're like, oh, I haven't done it this week. He's also probably going to be a little less patient if he had to do it to go, no, no, you could have handled that differently. So it's a good challenge one way or the other. It's great comfort and a good challenge. He is a son of man. There is one God, but they take on slightly different roles like this one. Jesus is the one who judges because he represents us. He was one of us, is one of us. He is the high priest. He gets it. So did the early Christians, did the early saints really see them as together as three and one? After all, the word Trinity wasn't added in. We, we invented that word many, many years later. It's not appear in the Bible, the word itself, Trinity. So let's look at these passages to make sure you know we're on the right page. <laughs> the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 6 says, There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but the same God works all of them in men. Right there together, all three. The Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 1, 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatius, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Holy Spirit, and for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling in his blood. This is the Apostle Peter. So the Apostle Paul puts them together. The Apostle Peter puts them together. Maybe Jesus, not to drop names, but Jesus says in Matthew 28, 19, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Jesus seems to put them together on equal playing field at some level. For a long time, Christian theologians taught this as some type of, <clears throat> like just an academic conversation. That's how I understood it. But check this out. This is, this is really cool. <clears throat> In relatively recent times, it's become, we've become aware of the fact we just kind of excuse this for a long time. But if you have a God who claims to be loving as part of his identity, God is love. As part of his identity, and you're going to also have that God be a pre-existent, self-existent God. That that means that for however long you have before time, again, we don't have language for this, but however long it was before time, there was only God. Before creation was some kind of timeless eternity before creation. Only God. So how do you use the word agapeo, charity, self-sacrificing love about a being that exists in isolation? How could that be possible? Who does he sacrifice for? Who does he defer to? Who does he, who does he look to? And so what we have is essentially a logical impossibility of a charitable, sacrificial God who is that is part of his identity and yet he was self-existent that creates a dichotomy that's really, really hard for us to break through unless, here's a crazy thought, God is more than one person and always has been. And that a loving, charitable, sacrificial God 
could have been loving and sacrificing and deferring in eternity past forever. That you could have, you would have had this relationship, a a self-contained, sacrificial community of God. Not God's, God. The one God existing in three persons. This, This actually answers hard questions, not just to create them. We have all through, I'm not going to look at them, I'm going, to, I'm going to say them, and if you want to write them down, you can, or if you want to ask me for them later, I'll send them to you. But there's many, many examples of this. If you've read through the New Testament, you've seen it. The Father encouraging and pointing to the Son, like in Mark 3, 17, 9, 7, and Revelation 5. We looked at Revelation 5 last week. The Father giving the Spirit, John 14, 26. You have the Father pointing to, endorsing the significance of the Spirit. Jesus honoring the Spirit in John 16, 7 and Matthew 12, 32. That's when Jesus says, say what you will against the Son of Man, but don't blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Jesus pointing to the Father, pretty much everything he said. John 14, 28, Matthew 10, 32 and others. The Spirit uplifting the Son, Luke 1, 35, Luke 4, 1 through 18. The Spirit encouraging people to go to the Father, Romans 15, 13. 1 Corinthians 2, 10 through 13. What we see all through the New Testament is the Father going, look at my Son. This is my beloved Son in whom I am so pleased. And then he sends the Spirit. And Jesus says that Spirit is an improvement. No, no, it's better for you if I leave and send the Spirit. They're they're, they're like the mutual admiration society, these three. They're constantly going like, no, no, listen. I know it's good you've had me. It's great that you had me for three years. But really, for your your benefit, I need to leave because you've got to meet this Holy Spirit. And you got to get him. So I'm leaving so, he, you, so you can get him. And, and, and the Holy Spirit's sending us, pointing us, drawing us to the Father and the Son. God has eternally existed and his Son has eternally existed and the Spirit eternally exists because the two of them eternally have existed. Some great teaching words that we won't get into today, but it's a, it's a beautiful picture of this, this God who is so defined by love, it would be impossible for him to be isolated. There has to be at least a couple of him. And if there's a couple, there's by definition three, according to some philosophers, which I buy into that too. Do not marvel, Jesus says. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. You're impressed by this miracle? Yeah, don't be. You ain't seen nothing yet. If you've been impressed, if we've looked through the book of John so far, where here we are in John 5, about to start John 6, and you go, man, this stuff is really good. You ain't seen nothing yet. We haven't even gotten to the good stuff yet. But understand, this is an important teaching for us to understand. It's easy for us to to walk away from in our day and age to remember that there's coming a resurrection. We'll close on this. 1 Corinthians 15, 42. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, and what is raised is imperishable. Man, you start, I'm going to camp this year, going to youth camp. I've been going to youth camp since I was 19. Back then when I weighed about 160 pounds, 170 pounds, those little paper-thin mattresses weren't so bad. They're not made for 230-pound people. Waking up different, all night with different parts of my body, falling asleep, turning over, kids making noise all night. I was thinking, man, I'm too old for this. And then I realized 
I'll go to, probably go to camp with Emma when she's her senior and I'll be 60 that year. I'm not even halfway done going to youth camp. <laughs> These bodies are perishable. They're failing us. Past about 21, 22, if you're, you know, hardcore working out till about 30 and they start failing you. I was talking with uh, Bobby Stroop in the church. Like, I heard sprinting's really good. Like, better than, it's better on your body to sprint than to jog. And I'm not kidding you. He's so sweet and gentle with me. He goes, well, up to a point. And you reach a certain age and the risk of injury becomes really high. You're sprinting. I was like, you got anyone in mind, Bobby, that you're... What is sown is perishable. That's us. What is raised, it's imperishable. No more aches and pains forever. Waking up every day with none of that, with none of the fatigue, with none of the mental illness, with none of that, it is sown in dishonor. That's us. But it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness and it is raised in power. 1 Thessalonians 4.16 says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the shofar of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So let me encourage you with these words. If you don't have this free gift of life forever, please don't leave today without it. You don't have to fully get it. None of us fully get it. He's mysterious. The, the, the path of some of it is mysterious. That doesn't mean irrational. It doesn't mean it's illogical. The word logos was, was there for a reason about God. It is okay that we can engage with and study and dig and, and understand who, who Christ is and what he's taught us. But comfort yourself with this thought. This life is temporary. That's discouraging to us because we like this life and that's good. That's good that we like this life of a lot of us do. Some of, for some of us, it's really, really hard, but... Someday, something better. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you are a God who is three. And you are a God who is one. There can only be one omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent. And yet, there has to be more than one for you to be loving and sacrificial and merciful. Thank you, Father. Those define you as well. That means you are three and you are one and we are so grateful for you to reveal this to us over time. And it, took us, it has taken us a long time to wrap our brains around it. But help us to be comforted with the fact that you do things differently than how we would do them. Which is important because we have been sown in dishonor and you will raise us in glory. Even so, Lord, come quickly. In your son's name, amen.